Hello, hello, hello. This is the uh, Dry Bones Ministry special podcast series, Reflections on the Screwtape Letters. And uh, we take a pause today from our normal working through the letters of this incredible book by C.S. Lewis to have a conversation with a good friend of mine, Father Tim Neely, someone who I look up to and admire, and especially just uh, um, not only his holiness, but his his intellect. This is just a, a smart, smart man. So uh, I drove up to see him at his parish and brought along a microphone just to kind of dive in and talk about the screw tape letters. So it's a longer podcast. I hope you can have the time to enjoy it, maybe all in one sitting or broken up. But yeah, just a massive thanks to Father Tim, Father Tim for his graciousness, his insights, and yeah, shedding a little bit more light on this classic work by C.S. Lewis. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the special Dry Bones Ministries podcast series, Reflections on the Screwtape Letters. I'm Father Adam Potter and today I take a pause from our reading through the Screwtape Letters uh, to have a conversation with uh, a good priest, a friend, Father Tim Dealey, to break open a couple of these great themes of the Screwtape Letters, dive in a little bit more to what's going on in this rich, rich book and everything. So, Father Tim, thank you for being willing to come on the podcast. Thank you. It's an honor. And uh, as a fan, I'm uh, a little nervous to be on the thing I've been listening to all of Lent. So, thanks for the invite. Appreciate the flattery. happy to be here appreciate all the podcasts that I listen to. Um, some hosts are gracious enough to like introduce who they're talking to, and then others are just like, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Like, uh, can you tell us? Where we go? <laughs> <laughs> I will not be the gracious host. Tell us. Uh, uh, yeah, so my name is Father Tim Dealey. I'm uh, a priest of the Diocese of Pittsburgh. I was ordained uh, 2019, so almost three years ago. And uh, I grew up in Greenfield, right across from St. Rosalia's Church. Um, and family house. My parents still live there, so uh, my great-grandfather built it. Um, so I grew up in Pittsburgh, and then uh, for college I went to school in Boston at Boston College, and then stayed in New England for 10 years afterwards and was a high school teacher at a big all-boys prep school there where I taught Catholicism. Um, so I enjoyed that, but uh, as life went on, I came back home, joined the seminary to be a priest here in Pittsburgh, and uh, it's, I'm delighted to be that's be back awesome. home and be a priest, and I'm at the parishes of Assumption St. John Newman and Sacred Heart. So, been here for almost three years now. I'm so, glad to have you back in yeah, Pittsburgh. It's good to be home. Been, uh, didn't really appreciate until coming to know you afterward, after joining the seminary and becoming a priest, just um, what that was like of almost losing you to the harsh diocese of Boston. But um, Well, Bishop, Bishop Tobin's from Pittsburgh. Uh, so he, really, he and I were the only two Steelers fans in a school of a thousand boys every time the Patriots would beat them. So it was a close call. We, I felt like I had to stick with the Pittsburgh. But Good opportunities for stuck with the humility. Yes. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you're a, a C.S. Lewis fan, are you? And... I am. Um, for lifelong. So my parents introduced me to him through the Chronicles of Narnia when I was a kid. And I think that's how a lot of people came to know C.S. Lewis. I knew him as a children's author. And then uh, he has a, a science fiction trilogy, uh, the Space Trilogy or the Ransom Trilogy. So when I was a teenager, I read those. And then I realized that the stories that I liked so much were actually written by a really faithful Christian. And that hmm. imbued in the stories were 
the themes of Christianity. So Aslan sacrifices himself and rises from the dead, and that's Jesus. And, um, the Space Trilogy has things about angels and some of the more beautiful things I've ever read. So it was a really, and the same happened with J.R.R. Tolkien. I liked these stories, and then I realized that they were incredibly Catholic, or Lewis is about as Catholic you can get without actually calling himself Catholic. He went to, I think, daily, daily Eucharist. So, um, and then I went to college, and Peter Kraft is a professor at Boston yeah, College, and he made I mean, he's written, I think, over 50 books on the faith. And he had a course on C.S. Lewis on his nonfiction. Huh. So then I got to read uh, Lewis's book, uh, Philosophical Arguments About Miracles, or Mere Christianity, or um, a ton of other things. So I came to new, uh, know Lewis, uh, the author, uh, for his really deep engagement with the culture and with the truths of the faith and um, so I've read C.S. Lewis many times in many different ways over my life and then when I was teaching uh, you know I do excerpts from C.S. Lewis because he has beautiful ways of putting things or insights and like we see with the screw tape letters just his imagination is incredible and it's so thoroughly formed by reality and yeah. especially the reality that's Christ a, th a thoroughly formed imagination is, yeah, what's been jumping out to me and coming to appreciate C.S. Lewis. Um, Even to get in the mind of demons. Holy moly, yeah, that's a crazy imagination that shouldn't be taken uh, lightly at all. The Tell me, in terms of working with the boys, you taught, was it nine years? Yeah, nine and a half uh, school years, I think, yeah. So I had, uh, it was a big school, about a thousand boys. Um, wow in the smallest state in the Union, so it was Rhode Island, so uh, we were really good at every sport, which was <laughs> a lot of fun. And not for the other schools, but from the inside it was a lot of fun. Um, but I always taught sophomores, which was New Testament and church history, um, and sometimes I would have freshmen, juniors, seniors, so moral theology, um, trees of the faith, world religions, social justice, so I kind of got to teach everyone. Um, but. I think over, I added it up at one point, it was um, a couple thousand kids I taught over 10 wow. years, so, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a privileged position, I had a great time, good fellow teachers, it was kind of a school of, it was a, it was a good school because it was a real Catholic school, and the teachers were eager for the truth, and so we'd have reading groups, and sometimes we'd read C.S. Lewis or some other author, even in the summers, and the science teachers would be there, the math teachers, the religion That's teachers. So cool. So it was a real kind of faculty or community, and the kids saw that, and that was attractive to them. Hmm. That the faith isn't just one topic, it informs everything. You have our faith or religion class, and then you go out and do the, the other classes You shut too, that you know? part of your brain off and then do your science, because that's yeah. not how it works. So. Were there any C.S. Lewis um, books that the your high school boys were more drawn to, or that you found just more effective in terms of... Teaching. Yeah, every year for the morals course, even if I was teaching or someone else was teaching it, we always went through uh, mere Christianity um, because he just makes a very good case for, or also the abolition of man we would read. Just he makes a very good case for the moral truths that the church teaches. She teaches them not because they're her opinion. She teaches them because they're true. And everyone can kind of figure them out for the most part. Um, and so to live a moral life isn't specifically a Christian thing. Everyone should be doing it, but Christianity 
God's grace helps us to do that. It makes it way easier. So yeah. if someone can climb Mount Everest on their own without any oxygen, sure, they, it's, they can do that. Some people can. It's very difficult. But why not take an oxygen tank and mm. let the Sherpa guide you up? And so that's what the moral life with, with God's grace, it's a lot easier. Yeah, amen to that. Awesome. Um, I want to dive into the screw tape letters with you and just kind of pick your brain. Um, one of the things that yeah, apparently uh, kind of caused Tolkien to hesitate in writing this himself was that he was worried about just the effects of getting into like the mind of, of the enemy and just how much that would um, play on him. And yeah, then I I came across thinking about the, the mind of the enemy and thinking about the voice of the enemy. And there was this passage that I, I found that I wanted to read to you that I've just kind of been hanging on to, not sure how to, how to use it or integrate it, but wanted to bring this out. This was from a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote about the inspiration for the book and a letter to his brother, who had recently been rescued from Nazi-surrounded Dunkirk during World War II. So Lewis explained that in the church, Sorry, that in church, July 21st, 1940, it was the morning after he had listened to a very persuasive radio speech by Hitler that made even Lewis waver in his convictions. He had been struck by an idea for a book, which I think might be both useful and entertaining. It would be called As One, De As One Devil to Another. The idea would be to give all the psycho psychology of temptation from the other point of view. Um, I'd love for your comment on that. I like thinking about <laughs> thinking about Lewis hearing a, a radio speech by Hitler, like one that we just kind of see as this embodiment of it, of an enemy, and almost being persuaded, almost causing him to waver in like the conviction of like what that sounds like. That that all of a sudden in church was like, hmm, whoa, like seeing the darkness and the light, and yeah. Yeah, it's a great, um, yeah, and, and again, Lewis is so honest, uh, even about his own life. It, I think his autobiography is Surprised by Joy. He's, he's brutal on himself because he knows that he needs to be so that he can be redeemed by Christ. But to, to admit that you've heard Hitler talk and you kind of didn't hate it, and almost that's a very honest thing to do. And... The greatness of Lewis is that he can immediately apply that to things worse even than the worst human being that we can think of. Um, and uh, his point there, the, the word psychology pops out because Lewis is just, in addition to a great writer and a great uh, having a great imagination, when you read through his writings, and you can see it especially here in the screw tape letters, he gets human beings our minds, he knows our souls, he's, he's really good at the psychology of both men and women, which is different, you know, and the greatness of them and our weaknesses and our flaws and just how if someone were really evil and really knew us well and could exploit us in a way worse than he experienced hearing a speech from the most evil person I can think of. Um, <laughs> For most of us, yeah. Yeah, that he could delve into that and make it seem real and plausible that What's Wormwood is doing and attempting there, his guy, his patient, 
and maybe the patient's love interest and that that could be really my me I could see that happen in my life and what if there was someone out there who knew my mind and heart as well as Lewis seems to know human beings in general mm. and uh, was had no goodwill for me and was a specifically assigned to me to not help me to help me trip and fall at everything and exploit any little pain I have and, um, anyway it's a great the psychology of uh, how Lewis goes about things is, is great. The great psychologist, I think, in many ways. He knows yeah. the human mind and he knows the human heart. And here you just see the reverse, the, the negative side of the image. And it's just so different that it can't help but uh, grab our attention. Not in a macabre way, because he took Tolkien's um, warning pretty seriously. Don't know the mind of the enemy too well. It's like with Saruman and Lord of the Rings. He studied yeah. the Dark Lord too much and then became enticed by it. And then himself became evil. Lewis does it, he's too wise for that. He was too, it's too much grace. So we can see it from the safety of a good guide, what it might be like to be tempted like these people. Can you say more about that? Yeah, because I just think they're, um, hearing some of the feedback of the listeners to this podcast and as they're reading through a lot of times I mean it's really dark and it gets really intense um but it, it, it is amazing like how do you see Lewis kind of like protecting our own hearts our own souls and going into this and yet not allowing it to be of course like utter discouragement but yeah yeah it's a great point and I, I remember uh when I it's, 20 years ago now, but I took this, the class with Kraft on this, and he, Kraft himself took it very seriously, Tolkien's warning to Lewis, that this wasn't the kind of thing that everyone should do as a writer. And I think the same applies to us as readers, that this isn't a kind of book that you read um, inattentively, or you read just for distraction, or you read just simply for the pleasure of it, for like how imaginative it is. He's touching the Lewis's in this book on really deep and really powerful parts of our lives that we're usually unaware of, or that we pretend aren't there, or yeah. that we're uncomfortable with and we just kind of keep pushing off to the side. And when you read the screw tape letters or you listen to them, um, you're confronted with real evil, which is not something that we're normally used to. And it's a real evil, not in the, a charactered way, not in a far distant way. We can't just slap the title Hitler on this evil. This is evil that is inside of me, mm. that I've maybe like, you yeah. know, um, or it's evil that is really malicious, these devils, and they want my destruction, not my, not my happiness. So it's the kind of book that you have to kind of be careful even when you're reading because, um, we're dealing with powerful stuff here. And the greatness of the book is that Lewis protects us. And he does so a lot of times by the psychology of, by the imaginative of it, but, but just being such a great writer. It's fun to read, it's pleasure. It, this is a really great book. Um, and he does it through humor. So even the fact that it's an uncle and nephew, that's funny. <laughs> the devils have uncles and nephews. And that they seem, they, they don't trust each other. You know, there's later on, it seems like Wormwood uh, 
tries to get his uncle in trouble with the the authorities for something maybe out of line. So there's a it's a completely terrible kingdom. At one point, there's that horrible phrase that he says of, uh, "We enjoy the miserific vision." Yeah, and that's just uh, that sounds utterly terrifying. <laughs> but he addresses them, "My dear Wormwood." Well, they hate each other. They don't trust each other. But there's still this playful, like English gentlemanly affection towards it. Um, but the funniest part, I think, stands out. I think it's letter twenty-two, where um, he's writing to Wormwood, and he gets he has making this point about music and silence, and then he is erratic. They're not in control of themselves, so he just ends up going after Wormwood, and he gets so angry that he says. In the heat of composition, I find I have inadvertently allowed myself to assume the form of a large centipede. <laughs> but these, these were these great majestic beings, these two, at one point. They were both high angels. Wow, yeah. And that they've become so, they've lost all their power and dignity and beauty and control that this beautiful, once angelic being, it turned themselves not through their own will, they just lost control and became a centipede. That's very funny. And that shows uh, not just how the angels can fall, but how we can too. And that the things that they're tempting us to do here are really so beneath our dignity. These little uh, desires that we have or habits, and they can just uh, blo not blossom, they can burg them. It's the opposite of blossoming. Yeah, it's, it's a bad blossoming. Um, they can grow into um, these really sort of cancerous type of things, and yeah. we can become less, not just than sons and daughters of God, we can become less than human mm. when we follow, and we can become like the animals or a centipede. Or... Thanks for that. That was, it was wonder just like in reading it, kind of wondering what, like what it, what's going on here, what's really happening, and it, it is like the utter basement, utter destruction of what happens and following this path of evil, which, yeah, it is fun. <laughs> it is funny, and then it's also just like uh, a stark contrast to the proposal of like, this will make you free and uh, happy and all these like joyful pleasures that you get to enjoy, and here he is like giving in to all of his pleasures. Only to, to come to this little, oh, it's not it, I guess a centipede isn't an insect, is it? But yeah. So Lewis, Lewis sort of protects us, so he'll, he'll break it up a little bit. But yeah. The, you know, cool. there's, there's these really, you know, serious things going on, not just for the characters, but because it's, they're us or we're them. Um, and we're sort of aware now, maybe in a way that we weren't of, of the cleverness and the diabolicalness of, of devils and temptation that we all experience every day. But, um, some, I forget which is a T.S. Eliot, human beings cannot bear very much reality, they said. So you need to break it up with humor. Because we'll get a little too scared or a little too depressed. So Lewis, the writer, is our good guide and helps us out once in a while. That's so true. Father Tim, what are some of the things that um, you think should be really highlighted in terms of these letters? Um, whether it's just ideas, approaches, or themes? I mean, again, as a fan of the podcast, I think you've done such a great job doing that. Uh, I've just enjoyed listening to it and kind of remembering different passages, but you've set such a great context for it. Um, but I, so I've been sort of following along, and um, one of the things that popped out to me was, I forget, forget when you mentioned it, but um, the, the kingdom the, the devil's in 
Um, and again, it's the flip side. And even I find myself reading through it or listening. When, when, and this is one of the reasons you got to pay attention when you're reading the book. You can you just forget whose side you're on because you, you read the enemy and you think like, oh, well, yeah, oh no, that's my people. I, I'm on that side. <laughs> um, but the enemy or the the devil's realm here, um, the the things that they hate. There's a long list of things they hate, and uh, the one that stuck out to me just reading through recently was they, he hates both music and silence. Hmm. And that just jumped out of like, it should be an either or in some ways, but then Lewis comes through with the third option that the devil just enjoys noise. Yeah. The music is ordered and harmonious and beautiful and or it can be or should be. And I think we've all experienced that. Like some of the greatest times of elation is our favorite song or you're at a concert, and, you know, which is kind of like a secular mass in the sense like it takes us out of ourselves and we're part of something bigger and we're singing with the crowd or with the band or the lead singer. And we have this great feeling of like union and community. Like music does all that for us. And it can help us see things more beautifully. It can help us see God or see ourselves better. So that, I guess that makes sense why the devil would hate music. But he also hates silence. And Yeah, what's that about? It just seems like... I can kind of get on board with that one. Sometimes silence is really difficult, or it seems like the absence of something. So maybe the devil you think would like it because nothing's happening. Mm. And it's the exact opposite. Silence is just pregnant with meaning or possibility. And we know from all the saints and the great spiritual writers and the Desert Fathers that it's in silence that we can finally hear the voice of God. Elijah with the still small voice there's too much noise or even too much music we're not gonna be able to hear it so the devil hates silence it seems like because then we can finally hear God or we might turn to him so the devil falls back on noise which is neither music nor silent it's just interference right and it keeps us spiritually cut off uh, we're not open to God and we're not following the other path through music and beauty to him. We're just distracted from distraction by distraction, constantly, all day, every day. Even podcasts can be, not this one, but even podcasts can be too much noise. So, and even just, you know, just on a personal note, uh, on podcasts and everything, I, I used to read all the time before I would go to bed. You know, I pray, obviously, yeah. but also read. And for a while, I got into a habit of just falling asleep listening to podcasts. I'd set a timer and everything. And it wasn't bad, but it was just noise. And there's something nice about having prayed night prayer. And, oh, Lord, let your servant depart in peace, you know. Um, that There's just kind of silent ending of the day. And if God wants to speak there, that's great. But I'm going to try and allow him the opportunity just for me and him to be in silence together. So have I been 100% successful on that? No. But it was a kind of nice, it was some of a spiritual director who told me, you might want to think about silence at the end. You don't need noise. Yeah. There's too much noise right at the, the beginning and the end of the day. And we pray, you know, stop our day several times to pray the Psalms. It's nice to have that built in. And the devil hates it which means it must be really, really good and really powerful. <laughs>
I appreciate your honesty. Yeah, I know um, hanging out with enough high school, middle school students, that most of them will just readily admit that they all fall asleep with the TV on. Or Is that right? Yeah, just like, um, yeah, they're lost in the social media world, and it's like, and that's what they're falling asleep to, literally stimulation, right? And not just like mentally, but even just onto their nerve cells and their eyes and brain. Yeah, so not good on a natural level, but then on a psychological, spiritual level, that there wouldn't be that, that silence to enter into. It's just, yeah, what's happening to the unrest, the noise of our, our soul. Um, so. And the devil seems to enjoy that, from what Lewis says. Right. Noise and distraction. Noise and distraction. How prophetic is he? So, I mean, that's like one example here of just writing this in the, the 40s, but did he had no idea what was coming. Right, yeah. The, the one, sorry, just so the one line he um, talks about kind of like just the kind of looking for distractions, even finding a distraction and just looking at the, the burnt out embers in the fireplace. And you're just like, what? Like, who would do that? Like, that's a really like low empty, but it's like replace the, burnt out embers of the fireplace and just put a phone in there and it's like then that's all of us right just like looking avoiding reality avoiding what's actually going on just to zone out and yeah he had no idea but he's speaking right to that yeah yeah and i, I mean not to pick one particular example um but having taught all boys uh and i've played video games i enjoy them um that has become uh, just a a way for people to lose themselves for hours and days and weeks and it's more than the time spent it's mm. the sounds and the images and the interaction of a world that's not real so is that fine in moderation as you know uh, once in a while or for amusement sure but it's uh there can become a way that we can give our souls really our imaginations you know that should be formed by the faith they're formed by video game developers and these, these beautiful worlds and interesting and everything. Some of them, some of them are quite horrible. But, um, but to devote our, uh, our time and imagination and skills and emotions to it. I mean, you don't want to die in the world. You want to beat everyone else uh, to a thing that's not real. Um, I could, could Lewis have imagined that? I think he did. Because really? he, he has, as you see, there, there's a kind of he imagines the kind of thing that yeah. distracts us or can own us or that we might end up worshiping by how much time and energy we devote to whatever it is, cell phone, video game, Twitter, um, our standing on social media, even just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And the cat did that funny thing. I mean, what are we doing? We're immortal human beings. We're here to do great things. And uh, we're watching cats and dogs bop each other on the nose. That's fine for a little bit, but it's too much. These little burning embers have gotten into our pockets and minds, and sometimes we just yeah. need to realize we need to let them go. This isn't an anti-technology rant on a podcast that would be hypocritical. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the kind of oh, thing yeah, where really. Lewis yeah. can see... It would be really interesting if he was walking around here in 2022 and 
maybe how horrified he might be, but maybe also not surprised. Because regardless of how technology changes, human beings are the same. Which is why what Lewis is doing here is so insightful. That the psychology of us were created by God to do these great things. And then the demons who have rejected God hate us. And this comes through this uh, this comes through in, through in the book in different ways that um, you can see his uncle's hatred of human beings because he seems to he, he seems to have seen people like them down through the millennia hmm. that we're the same whether it was people walking around with Moses the people who in Jesus's time some Viking in the ninth century you know someone in the Renaissance, someone in Lewis's day, someone in 2022, human beings are the same um, in a good way. Right. And the reason we're, we need Christ is that we're up against enemies that have been dealing with human beings from the beginning. And they know our psychology better than we do. They know our weaknesses. They know our potential for great power and glory. And I think it comes up when... Um, patient meets the love interest and there's just that, that you can just see the visceral hatred for her because she's so good yeah and he said you know in previous ages we would have sent her to the um, stadiums and but now that the christian thing has taken hold she's untouchable almost to us Mm. There's a power there from the culture of Christianity, from her family being Christian for generations, from her growing up in the faith and all the protections of grace and the sacraments that um, she's, she's more powerful than her ancestors would have been because Christ has been at work in her family, in her culture, in her city, in her country, in her life. Um, so what the devil could have exploited earlier, he can now. Thanks for, yeah, I, hmm, so that's amazing because I guess I've, I come to, to read this imposing my own limited historical vantage point onto screw tape, but what you're saying is, right, right, no, I mean, um, being a eternal, right, like outside of, of time, you're, like, a lot of it's present too, like he's been, he, not just like he hasn't heard about it, like he was there. Right, like he, he remembers, and so to be able to see what's happening now in this like context of all the ways that he knows the story, he knows how the story goes, which would cause an even greater visceral reaction from him. Yeah, yeah, he, he knows how the overall story goes, and he's seen these little stories of little human beings time and time and time and time and time again. And you can get the sense he's been successful, you know, in, in his way of destroying human lives. And he's been, he's, there have been failures. Um, failures because they've been overmatched and overpowered. Not by the human beings, but by the human beings allowing the enemy to work in them. So, it's a wonderful thing. And terrifying. But mostly wonderful. I'd love to talk to you about love in the screw tape letters that yeah I think in our over sexualized world uh, we think we're talking about love or consumed with love and, and yet what's proposed is a very different image and, and understanding and um, yeah would 
I would love just kind of your take on what's what's kind of being proposed in a way that shines a light on our distortions of both that romantic love, that being in love, and then like an, an actual love that's a, a choice of the will, and how love can be, gosh, on the one hand, um, both is in a sense neutral, right? Like amoral, that it's not just like, um, this, I guess more the feeling of being in love. It's not like, oh, this is it. It's like, what do you do with it? Kind of a thing that all of a sudden can turn my projection towards great good or great destruction and turning in on myself. Um, yeah, what are some of the things that we need to appreciate about <laughs> this that I guess Lewis is proposing from the, the opposite side here? Yeah, that's a great question. Because um, love obviously is the thing that permeates all of our lives. And it's something that the devil hates quite intensely. Love properly understood. Now other, like Lewis also wrote a book called The Four Loves um, about different types of human love. We have affection for certain things, pets, ice cream, maybe family members, you know, in, in higher order, maybe ice cream, pets, and then family. <laughs> and then friendship, one of the greatest, for the ancients, the, the highest of loves. Because um, it's not just love of another person, it's a shared love of something good and true and beautiful. We all need that. Um, and then romantic love, which is normally what we mean when we talk about love. And that comes into the screw tape letters, obviously. Um, and like with any of the loves, a romantic love is good and powerful. and It's created by God. It's natural in us. And it's something natural in us that he supernaturalizes. You know, his first miracle at a wedding, you know, which is the culmination of, or the beginning maybe, of romantic love. Um, so God loves love. And the devil hates love. And uh, like with any good thing, though, because we're messed up by original sin, because the demons are there tempting us, even good things can become bad things if we use them wrongly or use them too much or devote our entire lives to them. It's the video game thing again. But romantic love can be kind of like that, where it's to be a part of our lives, but not the whole of them. And we can lose ourselves sometimes, even in this seemingly really good thing of pursuing the beloved. Um, that can become, for us, the whole of our lives. It can become the story, the quest. And then it becomes a kind of false god. Whether it's the person themselves, my girlfriend, my fiancé, my wife, or whether it's just the feeling of it. And that was where things first went awry in Lewis's day. This would be kind of the trajectory down to where we are today, where the feeling of romantic love got separated from actual people and marriage, which it was made for. The romantic love gets us to marriage, and it seems talking to married people gets you through marriage too sometimes. That this is not devoid of feeling. This isn't just duty. This isn't just love. I, I love this person in a way that I don't love other people. I don't love my friends or my family this way. This is a specific type of love for my husband or my wife. Um, but even that um, could get exploited or become too much and separated from 
marriage. So people started chasing the feeling of love. You saw this with Hollywood actors in Lewis's day, or you know, in his case, maybe the the rich and the wealthy upper classes, that they were divorcing. The poor people weren't doing that, but the rich were, because they had the leisure and the money to chase romantic love for its own sake. Once you start doing that, then romantic love becomes the thing, and tied with that sex. So in the 50s and 60s in America, this happened earlier in Europe, people started chasing the pleasure of sex for its own sake, rather than the purpose of sex, which was to unify two human beings in one flesh for the whole of their lives, giving more than just their bodies, but their minds and their hearts, their entire lives, their family histories, all of that joined together, and then creating something new, a new and immortal human being. That's the power of sex there. But they took it out and separated it and isolated it and devoted their energy to it. All the time that people spent trying to sleep with someone else and all the money that they spent and the, maybe the lies they told. Or the, there's a way in which they devoted themselves in a religious kind of way to the pleasures of sex. And that was after they devoted themselves to chasing the feeling of romantic love. And you put two, those two together and you get the sexual revolution mm -hmm. in which you and I grew up and the after effects of that. With divorce and, and just even the movies that we grew up watching of this was the ideal, you had to follow your heart. The, these other commitments that you may have made, that, that they can be restrictive. And it wasn't all the time said, but it was felt. That you need to get out, you gotta be free, you gotta be yourself. And that's played out even you know, in the last 10 years in just ways that I don't know that Lewis really would have imagined. And maybe he would have been most shocked by this. Mm -hmm. That the most basic facts of human nature are now disputed as uh, hateful or irrational or, you know, the supposedly most scientific culture has abandoned the basic principles of biology uh, right. in terms of, you know, gender identity or whatever we're calling it now. That I, I would imagine Lewis would be shocked at how far things had gone awry from this little thing of isolating romantic love from marriage. The devil could exploit that little blip and blow it up into this gigantic thing. That was a long discourse. <laughs> there is so much, uh, I'm, I'm blown away by the, just like that distinction between those who have um, money, resources, leisure, are far more likely to entertain uh, like the um, idolization of romantic love as opposed to lower class, those who don't have this type of leisure or resources and um, thinking about how just fat, so to speak, we've become in our Western world that in a sense all of even the lowest of classes still have plenty of leisure to allow this to kind of consume and, and take them over um, in a way that, yeah, just really, which again is like a decoupling of ourselves from reality, from our responsibilities and from who we are. Um, the prophetic nature of like he yeah C.S. Lewis maybe not knowing and yet knowing all at the same time he has it in here but it's it's also played out in that um, hideous strength oh, yeah. 
where he really comes like whenever you decouple just like our intellect from our from ourselves and get to this like worshiping of science and reason all of a sudden we get to this crazy place of superstition of yeah of a yeah a supersti a superstitious um worshiping of demons in a way that's in our super rational way like no no we're not gonna but like but that's where it goes whenever you take rip ourselves apart um right yeah yeah if we're not worshiping god we'll worship anything i forget the line of how they said yeah. it but but the bigger point you make is that it's not anything we're worshiping something that's a demon that's a, a in some way shape or form they've tricked us into whether it's pleasure or power or pride or any other front that they put on behind that is the demonic mm. and they're very um, clever in tricking us that way not me I would never I, would, <laughs> um, I use us in a very broad sense there um, Father Tim any anything that um, you and kind of like and go through the, these different letters that maybe spoke to you uh, personally in terms of a, either a challenge, if you've already been kind of vulnerable already, but, or, um, yeah, just maybe different ways that, that you've found this, yeah, speaking to yourself and your own just navigating of this world and the spiritual life. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. And uh, just to thank you again for doing the podcast, because when it started in Lent, it was... Um, a while since I had read the book, probably 10 years or more. Um, and what I've been able to do through the podcast and then rereading it in, in Lent is to have a renewed appreciation for, I think, which was one of Lewis's main points in the book, which was to use his imagination, to use his insights into psychology, to, to have that faith-flooded um, writer's imagination put to this specific task which was to make us vigilant, to be able to see the enemy clearly. And the, the, you know, the ways that are written here in fiction, but that play out in reality in my life of what my own flaws are and how the devil can exploit those and how he has in the past and how he might in the future. And Lewis is a tough talker. He's like a, a coach that gives it to you straight. Mm -hmm. um, and we need that because we're a little squishy um, and we prefer not to deal with these things because they're uncomfortable. They involve admitting that we failed and that we're weak and that I don't have it all figured out. And, and the most embarrassing thing that the devil might, you know, that we all have that thing that we're, we're not proud of that sin. We want, I, I, I'm ashamed. And the whole way that the devil can try to do a number on us, Lewis pulls back the curtain with this book and we can kind of see the enemy with all his tricks, with all his evilness, and with all his limitations. That he is deathly afraid of the one who really loves us, that I could at any moment be in relationship with, and hopefully am, but there is a real battle going on. The vigilance that's called for because of the evilness of the enemy but also because of the stakes that we're talking about eternal salvation here mm -hmm. that when I look at my life there will come a day where I'll lay down in a bed and I won't get up and then there'll come a 
a day soon after that when they'll put me in a grave. And that's not the end for me. It's not even the end for my body. I'm going to be raised on the last day. And again, Lewis's great thing in The Weight of Glory is we're going to be raised to either something really beautiful or something really, really awful. And it will have all been based on my choice. But the gates of hell lock from the inside. I would be able to get out if I want, but it might be the case that I might not want to. Because the type of thing that I experience in heaven that Lewis shows so much through his fiction and even his nonfiction, that might be something that I come to hate. Because I've become like Wormwood and these mm. people. And I can't see what's good. and I've become so selfish that I don't like other people. Why would I want to be around them in heaven? I don't like concerts. I don't, I don't like singing with other people. You know, all these beautiful experiences we have, I could come to hate. I really could, me, personally. Yeah. And so Lewis knows that. And he writes a little book here to engage our imaginations, to engage our humor, to engage our fear, uh, but also our brain and our really our soul. That... Um, the Lord's tenacious, and the, the tenacity of the devils is outmatched by the lion, by Aslan, by Christ. And Father, why is it that um, the demons have such a hard time believing that he actually loves us? What? Um, is it a refusal? Is it a refusal to admit it? Is it a blindness? Is it... Um, something else I'm running out of I, like different like I think it, all of them yeah I I think the, the part of the thing Lewis shows too is how evil affects not just us but the demons that they're they're not able to see everything they think they do but they don't and they think they can see through things but they don't they think they can see the motives but they don't they're, they're Vision is limited. Their categories are limited. Their tools are now limited. And so they can only see things in terms of power or in terms of competition. They can't imagine anymore that someone might really do something out of genuine self-sacrificing love because their whole existence now is self. Mm. And to give that up is nothing. They have nothing left. So the fact that God himself is a self-giving thing, not to put it that way, but yeah. the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's God is love, which means they give themselves to each other. It's the exact opposite dynamic. And they're only able to see a little part of it, and maybe not even that. And so when they see it play out on earth here in our lives, they can't comprehend it. They can only hate it. And um, yeah, what they've lost, we too might lose. We're not going to be able to see it clearly. We can't understand love, maybe. One day if we go down that path. But luckily, we're not that far down the path. Christ has sort of come down and dragged us back up and saved us. And when we experience that love, we can see the temptations and the sins for what they are. Things that harm us that the Lord doesn't like. He came to die that they might be healed. Yeah. So love conquers all. Hopefully conquers us. To be consumed by love. Um, yeah, thanks for that. That's yeah, super insightful. One of my favorite lines of this book is from the eighth letter. 
and would love just kind of your take on on this and kind of helping to appreciate what our what our response needs to be in the the direness of just kind of like a lot of a lot of times we don't see God out there it's hard to see him working we're talking about the spiritual life angels and demons and yet so much of it is just hidden from our eyes and um and yet this just it's it's the glorious way that Lewis twists it around and what could sound evil all of a sudden is this invitation to real trust and real love so Screwtape says do not be deceived Wormwood our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys Can you speak to that? What's the, what's the invitation there? And this, especially in maybe like a, a considering of why God allows him, him to be hidden um, and these spiritual realities to still kind of be hazy and um, yeah, and they're a real opportunity for hope and trust. Yeah, it's, that's a wonderful line. And um, going back to my college days with Peter Kraft, he, he, doing apologetics with C.S. Lewis. We read his book on suffering. Uh, the Pleasure of Pain, I think, is, is the title. And it's a really difficult book uh, to read because it's a difficult topic. But um, also there's philosophical arguments that are, that are in there that are, you know, the mind has to grapple with them. But I just remember Crave saying, and I think this, is the, uh, this isn't his originally, but um, that the problem of evil like why God allows evil is one of the great questions that very difficult answers. Right? The Book of Job is essentially inspired. God inspires it to give His answer to it. But more than that, Crave uh, said the the bigger question that is more difficult to answer is why does God hide? And He hides even from those who love Him uh, sometimes. And so what what Lewis is saying here, and again, it's 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 the it's the tough coach approach. It's the, I'm gonna give you reality, and it's gonna hurt to hear the truth sometimes. And there will be times in the spiritual life where it's not enjoyable, or we need to go beyond the pleasurable and the comfortable. Those are good things. And you know, he says later that the, uh, the hell has not invented one play. These are all good things created by God that are just twisted. Um, but it's like with Lent. We have to go beyond them. And there might come a time where, as he says, you know, we do go out, look at the universe, and we feel forsaken. And bereft of any pleasure or even motivation or good feeling or consolation to still obey, well, that's pretty Christ-like. That's, let this cup pass from me. The Lord himself has shown us the answer to that. Um, but it will happen. And it's actually a good sign, I've been told, in the spiritual life when that happens, that we, God gives us, he, he takes us along slowly. And so, you know, we see this with um, people who have conversions or people come back to the church or even different parts in my own life or everyone's spiritual life where God knows we, we need to feel good. 
and we, we feel excited about it. Or we're just consolations there that he sends us his graces. Things are going well. And then there are times where those fall away, and it just seems like us, maybe us alone. Or where, God, what happened? I felt you were close to me, and now you're not. And that's a sign of, it can be a sign of spiritual maturity. But God's leading us on now. So I gave, you know, children need candy, and it's nice. But then to get in shape, you need a diet. And the diet we need sometimes is uh, a letting go of some of the really good things, of things that we like or things that are we take comfort in. And we need to be shaken out of our comfortability so that we can grow yeah. and get stronger. And part of that, sometimes it's not fun, it's not super exciting. Sometimes it does just come down to obeying God, even when we don't understand, even when we don't want to, even when we have so many good arguments for why this other thing is a better idea. Um, we never go wrong by obeying the Lord, lived out in the teaching of the church, you know, for that's how he's doing it nowadays, you know. Yeah. He did it through the prophets and Moses. He did it himself here on earth, and then he's going to do it through the apostles and his body here. And that can be hard, and it can be really great. Because we know that we know what we should do, even if we don't want to. And that uh, will grow, even in those seemingly dark moments. After Gethsemane is the garden on Easter Sunday. Yeah. And that's true in the spiritual life, too. We go from consolation to dark to higher consolation. And the path only leads onwards and upwards and inwards to that high country. But we got to be strong enough to run, and we need to get in shape. Uh, yeah, isn't it interesting to our contemporary ear, obedience just sounds repulsive in itself. Uh, and yet I love how you brought us that actually obedience in the truest sense plunges us right into the heart of Jesus there in the garden and um, to open up the path towards that union with the Father and truly our salvation. So yeah, what a glorious, glorious thing to die to our, our own self, our own self wanting to be the determination of what's right, what's wrong, what's good for me and to actually give ourselves over to something even higher that brings us to the glory we're made for. Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. And if he can be obedient, then you and I certainly can. Yeah. There's nothing dumb about obedience. Well, Father Tim, I'm grateful for your, your time. Uh, Thank you very much. This was delightful. And I'm, uh, as a fan and listener, very excited. So thank you for the invite. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's good. Um, sometimes I feel like as, as priests we have these conversations all the, all the time and just wondering if you could set up a microphone and just record it. Like, could it be a blessing to others? And so thanks for um, allowing that, that to be. Uh, would you mind closing us out with a, a prayer? Sure. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all your gifts to us. The gift of the season of Lent. The gift of C.S. Lewis, his writings, especially this imaginative insight into you through you, those who are your enemies, self-proclaimed. We ask that the knowledge that we have 
of you and of them and of ourselves might lead us to obey you in all things and to take the love that has transformed us into the lives of those who need uh, to experience it. We ask for your graces, for all our listeners, for our sponsors. We ask your grace uh, for your church, that she might always be the holy and pure beacon of light, of hope in a dark world. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. With your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I didn't mean to take the blessing on your own podcast. Sorry about that. I'm so glad you did. <laughs> Father Tim, thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. And um, yeah, just you, being a priest, you're a great blessing to a lot of people. Yeah, you as well. Thank you, sir. Well, I hope you enjoyed this special podcast series, this interview with Father Tim Dealey. What a gift it was to be able to uh, interview him and just get all of his insights and glean his great takeaways. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Tomorrow or the next episode will be the next letter, uh, chapter 24 of this book. So God bless you. If you'd like to support the work of Dry Bones Ministries, please visit our website, drybonespgh.org. I'm praying for you. Please pray for me. I'll see you next time.